We're going to be continuing on in our sermon series on the book of Mark. We're going to chip away. This is Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means son of, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The word of God for the people of God. The Bible has some very strange and some oftentimes very boring parts. One of the, the sets of texts that I love so much in the Bible is just lists of names, genealogies, because within those genealogies, there's deep-rooted theology. In First Chronicles, it begins the first nine chapters are just names, one after the other. So-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. And in your daily reading, I would imagine that most of you kind of skip over to get to the good stuff. What's interesting to note, though, is the book of Chronicles is a retelling of Samuel and Kings. It tells some of the same stories, but it, it tells them in a different way because the author is set in a different time period. The author is writing after the exile. The author is writing in light of disaster. The author is writing in light of destruction and oppression and people being removed from the land, the land that God had promised to their forefathers many, many, many years ago. This moment in Israelite history causes kind of an identity crisis where people no longer know who they are and they no longer know if God loves them and if God cares about them and if God is with them. And what the, the author of Chronicles does in a very subtle but very overwhelming way that we oftentimes miss as modern day readers is this list of names for nine chapters is the author's way of saying, you are still God's people. He still has a plan for you. He is still invested in your life even though through your own sin and the judgment that you have faced, it seems as though God has abandoned you. This list of names that we skip over in our daily devotions, whenever that comes up, if we're reading through the Bible in a year, um, is rooted with this deep-seated theology that says God is invested in you. And I think that we can kind of take some of that in our own contexts and circumstances where we face difficulties and we go through those moments where it seems as though God is completely absent and completely divorced from our life. And we go to Chronicles and see that we are still rooted in this story. I like lists of names because they teach us things. In the book of Mark, we have a list of names, and I think that the question should be, what is it that we learn from this list of names in the book of Mark? And I'm going to suggest to you that there are four things. I'm forgetting if I have three things or four things, but let's go with the latter. So we'll go with four. And if we get done with three, then that'll just be a pleasant surprise for some of you. Okay, so the first thing that we note um, from this list of names is we know more about the identity of Jesus. What Mark has been doing from the very beginning is trying to create this story that demonstrates who Jesus is. 
And what we've learned over the first few chapters is Jesus is the son of God and the way that he's doing ministry is completely different than people were expecting at that time. He was one who taught with authority. He was one that taught not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He's one that brought life and hope and forgiveness. He was one that added miracles to these teachings where it seems as though he's demonstrating the power of God, all of which is showing the kingdom. Again, the thing that people have been waiting for for centuries was invading this earth through Jesus. He was bringing about something that was new and something that was powerful and something that was fresh. And it was scaring the Pharisees and it was scaring people that were so concerned with the old traditions. And we've talked about that for weeks and weeks now, mainly because this seems to be an exciting moment for me. Those texts about new wine into new wineskins and the newness that Jesus is doing in his ministry is something that should speak to us even now, wondering what is the newness that Jesus is bringing about in our life, in our time, in our circumstance. This power that Jesus had in his ministry so long ago, how is that power invading our own lives? Or as we sit here today, does it seem as though we are in exile? Does it seem as though we are no longer God's people and that he is not one who cares about us? We see it in the book of Mark, this, this identity of Jesus that's being crafted. And one of the interesting things is the people that seem to know who Jesus is best in these first few chapters of Mark are the folks that are possessed by demons. Whenever Jesus shows up, the demon-possessed people say, I know who you are, you're the son of God, and everybody else around them doesn't quite get it. But it seems as though this identity that Jesus is, is living into at this time, they understand it, but the people around him that are supposed to understand it don't. Now, what's interesting, for an ancient reader of this text in Mark, what they would have heard was something that we probably don't hear because we're so far removed from first century Israel. Those first few words, which are very strange in the book of Mark, it says, Jesus went up the mountain. The NIV translates that, Jesus went up the mountainside, but in the Greek, it's the mountain. And what some people might have heard from that is a resonance of Moses, a resonance of someone who seemed to be like the founder of the Jewish religion, someone that they looked back to with pride and with, um, with hope and expectation that the prophet like Moses would show up again. So when they hear Jesus going up the mountain, they might think about certain stories from the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple. In Exodus 19, it says, on the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, it says, they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Jesus is going up to the mountain to figure out who his followers are, to call 12 people in particular. And here people see a connection between Moses ascending Sinai to, to talk with God and God saying, if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. And there's this intimacy between Jesus and his followers 
says that they will be with him and then he will send them out and an intimacy between God and Israel in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, we see something similar. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near and the people may not come up with him. So we see a separation here between Moses and the elders, Moses going up to the mountain to, to speak with God himself. It says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. We see this play between the Old Testament and the New Testament where Jesus is acting out, in a sense, Moses' past acting out, in a sense, this calling of the 12 tribes through the calling of the 12 disciples. We learn these things from a list of names. We learn this identity of Jesus as God himself who is taking on the role of Moses. But beyond that, we see Jesus kind of acting as one who has even more authority and power than Moses. It says, Jesus went up the mountain, which again would have brought to mind this tie with Moses and called to himself those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12. Jesus here in this moment is acting out in a sense this God-ordained sovereignty to call who he wants to call to be a part of his ministry. Jesus is not limited to the resonances of Moses. He's in a sense responding to what God did in the Old Testament and acting that out himself. We see that very subtly in the call of these 12, but we also see this, again, for ancient readers, this would have been so clear that this calling of 12 would have been a symbol of the reconstituted Israel, an Israel that was broken, an Israel that was waiting in anticipation for God to restore. Back in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and at the time when Jesus was doing his work, 10 of those tribes had been completely overthrown in the Assyrian invasion. This was an Israel that was, that was broken and hurting and waiting for God to bring them back together, waiting for God to restore. And no ancient reader would have missed what Jesus was doing. What Jesus was doing was a sign. It was not just calling 12 people because he needed companionship. It was calling 12 people because he wanted to show to the people around him that he was bringing in the kingdom in a way that was different, in a way that was powerful, in a way that would change everything. The way that most Jews at the time thought that this would happen would be through swords and through power and through authority and kingdoms being overthrown. But what Jesus was doing was showing them a different way, a way of sacrifice, a way of forgiveness, a way of mercy, and a way of peacemaking. And all of this is so subtle in this list of names in Mark. One scholar says, so when Jesus called 12 of his followers apart from the crowds and gave the special status and a special commission, nobody who heard of it could miss what he was doing. He was saying more clearly than any words could have done, this isn't simply a great healing mission. This isn't even simply a time of spiritual renewal. This is the restoration we've all been waiting for. 
the simple act of Jesus ascending the mountain and calling 12 people to be his disciples was a revolutionary political move where he's saying, it's time. Everything that you've wanted and waited for is happening right now, and it's happening through me. We, we struggle sometimes to understand um, why the Pharisees would have been so put off by this and so scared of this, but what Jesus was doing was um, overthrowing everything that they stood for, and he was showing his people a different way. This is a piece of art that is in the British Museum. It's called the Tree of Life. Um, this piece of art has a lot of weapons that have been um, handed over. Um, and what the, what the artists have done is they've created a tree out of old AK-47s and grenades and things that are usually implements of war and they've made a sign. They've made a living monument as if to say, violence won't solve the problem. It's taking scripture in a sense and, and showing a, a, a sign of the swords being beaten into plowshares. A time when peace would reign and rule. A, a time when, when God's mercy and justice would, would reign so that violence was no longer necessary. It was a sign that showed something that was true and something that was happening and something that people could understand in a different way than just standing up there and saying it. As we stand here today in the midst of world crises with earthquakes in Nepal and riots in Baltimore, we long for peace. We long for restoration. We long for redemption and reconciliation. And what the artists have a knack for doing is showing that in a way that is somewhat jarring and it makes you stop and wonder what's going on and what are they trying to communicate. And the way that Jesus lived his life was similar. The stories that he told were invested with these meanings that seemed to overthrow what was happening at the time. The things that he did were invested with significance beyond just calling 12 men to hang out with him. It was something that was different and something that was powerful and something that symbolized truth and goodness and beauty. It symbolized God's movement and God's kingdom coming here and now. We see the identity of Jesus being formed and shaped in these stories and we probably um, don't have eyes to see it because we're so far removed from this context and we also see the mission of Jesus clear as day. He's coming to reconstitute Israel and to bring about a different way, to bring about salvation and hope through a ministry that looks totally different than what people were expecting. The third thing that we learn from this list of names is we learn um, what it means to follow Jesus. I think that we can camp out here for a few minutes because this seems to be important for us and where we are in our specific moment. It says, Jesus went up the mountain and called to himself those he wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12 that they might be with him 
and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. We see this two-part uh, mission that Jesus has, that these folks would be with him and be invested in his life and be sharing meals with him and understanding his teaching and being like under his tutelage for two to three years and that at the proper and right time, he would send them out to do the things that he was doing. These moments that folks had with Jesus, especially the 12 and even more than that, the, the three of his closest followers, they were under his discipleship. They were learning from this rabbi what it looked like to be a follower of God in a new and fresh way. One scholar says that, that this idea of following Jesus, it means to be with Jesus and to carry on his mission. It means to deny oneself, to take up a cross, and to follow Jesus. The 12 serve as a supreme example of what it means to be a disciple, although their weaknesses and failures will soon be demonstrated. We, the example that we get is folks that are with Jesus. We can go in two different ways with this. One way would be in that stereotypical way of, are you spending time with Jesus? And I don't just wanna talk about prayer and I don't wanna talk about reading the Bible. I wanna talk about, is your faith commitment to Christ one that is continually transforming you from the inside out? Are you one that is being conformed into the image of Jesus each and every day? And then beyond that, are you investing yourselves in discipleship-based relationships with other people? Are you investing who you are in the people around you? Are you pouring into their lives and are you giving everything that you have to show people who Jesus is? Are you modeling that example of Jesus and his disciples in your own life? Are there people who can call you and text you and look to you for help and advice and just presence? One of the things I've learned in my few years of ministry is what a lot of people are looking for is not answers. They're looking for you to show up. They're looking for you to put your agenda on the back burner and just be present in their lives. Have we learned how to do that, first of all, with Jesus, to be present with him, but have we also learned to move beyond our schedules and do that for other people where we're present with them and we're investing in them and we're pouring ourselves out into their lives in a way that will make a difference? As I look around the room, so many of you are, and I applaud you. And I will encourage you to continue. At times, it will feel as though you are completely drained and you have nothing left to give. And I will challenge you to push through. I will also challenge you in a very practical way to find people, if that's where you are, to find people who can pour themselves into you and help that process. If you're the only one that's continually pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out, by the end of it, you'll just be withered up and dead. It's important for you to have people in your life that can help to motivate you and inspire you and encourage you. The example that we get is to be with Jesus. We also get the example of to carry out Jesus' mission. And this is something that we talk about all the time here. One of the cool things about the gospel is not just that we receive forgiveness for our sins, but we get to participate in the gospel right here and right now. We get to be folks that bring heaven to earth. We get to be folks that bring the kingdom to this place. In the midst of a world that's riddled with riots and hate, we get to be ambassadors of hope 
and goodness and forgiveness. It's not just something that we receive in the quietness of our rooms or whatever. It's something that we enact daily. We live out the gospel and we bring the kingdom to earth because that is what Jesus has entrusted us with. We are his hands and his feet and we look for people on the margins and we look for people that are broken and we look for people that need hope. And we show them Jesus. We don't just teach them Jesus, we show them Jesus. This idea of carrying out his mission, which Jesus is very specific with his 12, I want to be with you, I want them to be with me so that I can send them out to do this work that I'm doing, to cast out demons and to preach the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in these first few chapters of Mark. He's saying there's gonna be a time when you take it and you go. The third example that we get is, uh, it's subtle. It's not necessarily in Mark chapter three, but it's throughout the depiction of the disciples in the book of Mark where Jesus is wanting these folks to deny themselves, to pick up their cross, and to follow Jesus. This is something that I have a hard time with because the way that the gospel is usually um, communicated to people is it's free, it's easy. Yet the way that Jesus talks about it seems to be a little, bit, uh, a little bit different. In Luke 14, he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus seems to lay down a gauntlet where there's, there's things that we need to be doing, and I'm not trying to promote a works-based faith, but what I am trying to promote is a faith that does works a faith in Christ that so transforms who we are that we learn what it looks like each and every day to die to ourselves so that we can be better husbands, better wives, better friends, better employees, better students, better sons, better daughters, where it's not about us and the things that we have going on, but it's about the things that Jesus is wanting to accomplish in and through us to figure out what it looks like to die to ourselves and follow. And to hear in the back of our minds, not something that should, should riddle us with guilt or shame, but a challenge. Whoever doesn't do this can't be my disciples. It's daunting because sometimes we look in the mirror and it's a day, or a week, a month, a year where it's just been about me and the things that I want to do and the other people that have needed me, I've let them down. And not just that I've let down these people, but in a sense, I've let down Jesus who wants to work through me. Remember that participation in the gospel. This call to discipleship is one that is costly, and it's one that's not just free and easy. It's one that is hard at times. It's something that that pushes us into these disciplines that might not be our instincts, but the things that we're training ourselves in through the power of the Holy Spirit, working in us to become, again, the hands and feet of Jesus. Scott McKnight says, Jesus defined being a Christian as following him. And following Jesus is bigger than the single moment act of accepting Christ and the personal practices of piety plan, meaning it's bigger than just that moment where you raise your hand and you sign a commitment card and you respond to the gospel. It's bigger also than just going to church and reading your Bible, those, those acts of, 
of piety that are so important in, in forming who we are, but it's, it's more than that. It's a willingness to be used, and it's an investment in the lives of others. And as N.T. Wright would say, it's building for the kingdom that is here and now. I think this is why at times we struggle here um, in those altar call type moments. We struggle to give you guys moments to plant a flag in the ground and say, I am following Jesus because it's not just a moment. It's a life of commitment. It's a life of trust in the midst of exile, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of riots, in the midst of all the hatred that is around you. It's continually clinging to Jesus and following him and being about the things that he is about. Fourth, we see uh, this, this picture of the calling of Matthew and Simon and Judas. And what's interesting about this is the people that Jesus calls to himself are an unlikely group of people that would ever spend time together. Matthew is a tax collector. He works for the state, more or less. He is the one who has ripped off his friends and his countrymen and the people uh, that he might be sitting at the table with. Simon is a zealot. A zealot is one who is completely anti-establishment and anti-government. So we have the tax collector that has worked for the man and has taken money from all these people and has been someone who has ripped off his friends and his, his kin and on the other side of the table, as they're sharing bread together and sipping wine together and talking about Jesus and how great he is, Simon is completely and utterly against what Matthew has been about. And in this moment, we see pictures of grace where people who shouldn't be in a room together are actually in a room together. And it's not about politics and it's not about vocation, and it's not about the past. It's about radically following Jesus, the one who's changing everything and making this new thing new. If you think about your life for a second, and believe me, I, um, I'm with you, there's a severe lack of diversity at my table the people that I call friends and the people that I like to spend my time with are very much like me and they can pat me on the back when I need it and we can talk about politics and we can talk about all these things and we can talk about the Orioles and we can talk about all the stuff that we have in common and it's difficult at times to be sitting across the table from somebody who's different because they challenge us. I think at times we've kind of turned um, church into this homogenous mix of people and we have forgotten how to celebrate the diversity that's even in, in the, these pews here. We're coming into election season, even though the election is like years away. Um, but even now, if you're, if you're attuned to it, you can see things on Facebook where, oh man, this person is a Democrat and they're, they're promoting this, this candidate. And, oh no, this person's a Republican and they're promoting this. And, and yet here we are together in the same group where we have radically different views on this issue. And it's not just this issue, it's theology and it's practice and it's how we do life. It's parenting. Very early on, we could, we could figure out who the baby-wise people were in the group 
that had their kids on very strict schedules and we could figure out very quickly who the people weren't that had those strict schedules. And like just the way that we go about life, you can see there's differences in this group and they're to be celebrated. They're not to be um, maligned, they're to be celebrated and to be something that you can learn from. What we see in this particular story is these people who are radically different, they're invited in to this story in spite of all their diversity. That might even be a, a bad way of framing it. It could be because of their diversity or in light of their diversity. And in the same way, we are invited into this story too in spite of all our diversity. And I hope that that's something that we can celebrate together because at the end of the day, we find our unity not in the theological minutiae that divides us and not in our political views and not in our sports teams affiliations and not in the ways that we parent or not in the ways that we cook food or not in the ways that we do this or that or the other thing, but we find our unity together in Christ. And it should be very possible that at the table we have folks whose stories do not look anything like our own and it doesn't matter. At the table, we should have people whose political views are nothing like our own, and it shouldn't matter. At the table, we should have bread and wine, and we should be focused on the unity that we have through the cross and the empty tomb. I think that from this story of Jesus calling 12 people to himself out of a whole litany of followers, what we're challenged with are these questions of, are we following Jesus? Are we present with him? Are we denying ourselves, picking up our cross and following him? Are we ones that are celebrating the diversity at our tables? Are we allowed to see Jesus' move, not just in our lives and the people that look like us, but the people from different countries and different contexts and different backgrounds that have nothing in common with us to see Jesus be king over not just the Eastern Shore, but Jesus be king over the entire world. I hope that today we can continue to challenge one another to not be complacent in the way that we do this faith, to not be complacent in the way that we understand Jesus, but to leave here encouraged and challenged to participate in gospel ministry in a way that will change the world. Not because we're doing it, but because Jesus and the Spirit are working through us to bring about change and to mute these ideological differences and to have us celebrate unity in Jesus and his glorious resurrection.